0: Hello everyone, joining online or watching the recording. I am Frank Place, Director of the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets. It gives me great pleasure to welcome all of you to this webinar on feminization of agriculture. This is the second of two webinars on this topic. We have made we have Uh, created two webinars in order to present nine separate case studies on the topic. The first one was held on June 10th and focused on migration effects on gender roles and relations in rural areas. I want to give thanks to IDRC of Canada for enabling us to fund the entire set of nine studies and those are presented here today, three of the studies that they funded. This collaborative set of studies was one of three that PIM funded through the gender platform when we hosted it between 2017 and 2019. Another set of studies were on gender dynamics and seed systems, funded in 2017, and gender dynamics and value chains, awarded in 2019 and funded in 2020. The three topics, those two, and the feminization of agriculture reflect priority research issues of gender research coordinators across the CGIR centers. Let me introduce the moderator for today who who will provide opening remarks and then introduce the other speakers and the program. Rhiannon Pyburn is a Netherlands DGIR partnership senior expert and senior advisor, uh, gender and agriculture at the Royal Tropical Institute or KIT. She was the coordinator of the gender platform while it was under PIM and now leads the PIM cluster where that work is being completed. Before handing it over to Rihanna, and let me mention how our webin- webinar will work. The Q&A session will be at the end of the program after all of the speakers and the discussant uh, uh, gives her remarks. Throughout the presentations, I encourage you to type in your questions in the chat window on the right side of your screen. Please type in your name and organization along with your question. We will compile them and organize them by theme before posing them to the speakers. And then finally, we are recording the webinar, we'll make it available on the PIM website shortly after the event. So with those brief uh, introductory remarks, I'll pass it over to Rhiannon.
1: Great, thanks so much, Frank. Good morning, everybody, good good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is for you in your part of the world. Very happy to have you with us today to discuss uh, some of the findings from these grants. Uh, As Frank mentioned in in 2018, 18, at the end of 2018, we put out a call for uh, proposals for these grants that started in 2019. There were nine altogether, today we're gonna to be hearing from four of them. And we, we put out these uh, the call for these grants because we saw that the term feminization of agriculture was being used widely, but not consistently. So we wanted to understand, dig into um, not only the literature, but also Uh, look at what was happening empirically in relation to this, this phenomenon. Uh, There, there seem to be two main narratives in relation to the feminization of agriculture. Um, There's a book chapter forthcoming, which uh, distinguishes these two. A first is, is negative. It's, it says that the feminization of agriculture leads to, or causes the increased workload on women where women don't have the resources needed to be successful. So things like extension services, labor, uh, access to credit and so on. And it's the idea that women are left behind and they're left out as men move off farm, as they migrate and so on, as they move into more lucrative activities. A second narrative is more of a positive framing as as looking at the feminization agriculture as an opportunity. So an opportunity for women's empowerment, for gender equality, as women's work becomes more visible, as they become more visible, and as their voice uh, increases. The idea is that the implications for agri-food systems could be positive. So these projects, uh, the four that we'll hear from today and the nine overall, they they analyze the dynamics of feminization uh, and also are using proactive approaches that ensure Um, more positive benefits or or more equally distributed benefits um, as women become more active in in agriculture. So that they benefit from the agricultural labor that they do. Uh, They capture the fact that agricultural food systems are changing and look at what the implications of that are for women and men. And they dig into what do we really understand about this phenomenon, the feminization of agriculture. So today we're going to be hearing from four projects. The first will be presented by Kathy Farmworth, who is a freelance consultant. She'll be presenting on a project looking at gender and feminization processes in wheat agriculture in South Asia. We will hear from then uh, Kate Ambler from the International Food Policy Research Institute on gender and youth employment in agricultural value chains. Uh, then Alessandro Gallier and Stephen Olu from the International Livestock Research Institute will present on a project entitled Exploring Feminization of Agriculture Through Gender Dynamics Across Scales. And then uh, Els Le Couterie and from the Gender Platform um, with support, and, and we'll probably also see his face uh, in the question period, from uh, Bjorn van Kampenhout from the International Food Policy Research Institute. We'll be presenting on the use of ICTs to challenge gender stereotypes and empower women farmers in this age of feminization of agriculture. After hearing from the the four um, researchers, we are happy to have with us today Ruth, Mines and Dick, uh, who will reflect on what comes out from the projects. And we're really lucky to have her because Ruth has been a part of these projects from the beginning. Uh, She is one of the researchers on a different project, one that was presented a few weeks ago, Uh, so she really knows uh, what this group has been been talking about. She's a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and co-leader of the flagship on the governance of natural resources in the Policies, Institutions and Markets Research Program. So with that, I will turn to the first uh, presenter. Uh, just one final note, and that's that all of these projects were initiated pre-COVID, so that's just a bit of a bit of context for you. So with that, I will turn to Kathy um, Farnworth and ask the other um, the others to turn off their cameras, please. Thank you, Kathy. Over to you. For
2: inviting me to participate. Um, I'm speaking on behalf of the project team, Dr. Lone Badstu, the former head of gender and social inclusion at CIMIT, Friti Bharati, who led much of the Genovate research work in India on behalf of CIMIT, and Laura Wervan, researcher at CIMIT. So I want to talk about some of our findings regarding gender and feminization processes, wheat-based systems in South Asia. So next slide, please. Our research questions were, is decision-making in weeks becoming feminized? Is labour in weeks becoming feminized? In what ways do interactions between caste and gender determine and limit the spaces within which women can exert their agency? And in what ways are women challenging gender and caste norms to enhance their livelihoods? Next slide, please. So methodology and outputs. Our research was qualitative and small scale, and it was really in two parts. We conducted a literature review of research and feminisation processes, particularly since 2013, in wheat-based systems in Bangladesh, India, Nepal and Pakistan. And we we revisited one of the communities which we call Genovate, I'm sorry, which we call Jamari, which was visited during the Genovate initiative. So, CIMIC conducted research in Jamari in 2016 under Genovate. This meant that we had a rich database on gender norms, trades, and other information to draw upon when planning our qualitative follow up research in 2019, pre COVID. We conducted a range of participatory discussions with women and men in sex disaggregated groups. And we also met people in caste based focus groups. So this meant that the grouped non-marginalised, general castes and other backward castes, responders in one group, and scheduled castes and scheduled tribe people in other groups, always sex disaggregated. We also collaborated with Dr. Vijesh Krishna of Syrit, who was conducting a quantitative study at the same time in Jamari and Madhya Pradesh, um, he visited um, 18 communities altogether. This was funded separately, but we worked really well together and we we co-analysed our data, particularly the qualitative findings, and we co-wrote a paper which is currently under submission. So next, please. Turning to our findings, with respect to the first question about decision-making processes and REITs, um, we talked to women and men about topics like How do they talk about which variety of wheat to plant? How much land to devote to wheat? How much wheat to consume and to sell? We found that women and men gave quite different answers. So women reported highly variable participation in discussion processes, particularly among the general and the OBC caste. But men, regardless of their caste, said that women did not take any decisions and did not participate in decision making. And they justified this by saying that only men can be farmers, or Kisan, regardless of whether women or not actually work in the field. And men further said that women did not have sufficient knowledge to participate in discussions. Um, with respect to labour on family fields and as hard labours, women across caste reported very high participation in field work. Men across castes agreed that women's participation was high, but they overall reported lower participation than the women claimed, particularly in paid field work on other people's land. And the scheduled caste women reported overall more field work, both as hired labourers and on their own land. And the reason why their work on their own land was higher than reported by the women in the general castes and the other backward castes is because their land was really poor quality and it just needed a lot more efforts to farm. We also found that since the visit, since um, by January in 2016, women had started to lose work as hired laborers due to the mechanization of agricultural processes which started about that time. And they were really worried about this because they really relied on hired labor as a key source of income for their aspirations and to meet their goals. So paid agricultural work was really the only income generation um, possibility open to women in the village and mobility was quite restricted so finally on findings our discussion methodology actually changed as some women conceptualized themselves because we met the women frequently um, over 10 days and when we talked about the Genovate Trend Date and what they'd said three or four years previously and going back to 2006, and about their participation in decision making in the field, women started to say, yes, we are farmers. We lay claim to that identity. On um, slide five, please. So the contribution to the body of knowledge. Our fieldwork was really small to scale. But we hope it provides food for thought for further research. First, the literature review and the fieldwork show that it can be hard to achieve recognition for women as farmers. The concept of farmer kisan is strongly imbued with male identity. This is what the literature review suggested and our work in Jamari.
3: So this is the case
2: even if women participate in decision making and conduct work. So this led us to wonder, what are the implications for understanding feminization processes and for working with colleagues in research and extension services and when we're talking to policy makers, if women are not conceptualized as farmers? Do women need to claim the mantle of being a farmer before we can say feminization is occurring? Third, There is, of course, very significant literature which shows that women's participation as hard labourers is a reflection of agrarian distress. Our data is really limited, but we found that women's participation in paid work in the field is actually an outcome of their agency and their aspirations, something that they fought for. Fourth, we found that women are supporting Greek financially through self help groups. And it was one of the most important sources of money for wheat. We don't know how widespread this is, but we think it's an important topic for further research. Finally, we found that women tend to have the same aspirations and needs. For example, with respect to the kind of agricultural knowledge that they need across caste. But the divisions between the castes meant that women did not really share agricultural knowledge between castes, but they shared Within caste, women's networks within a caste.
3: And so that meant that women
2: were not really, although they had such similar aspirations and goals, they were not really sharing knowledge together. So I think there's quite a few implications arising from that. So thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to more discussion. Thank you.
1: Great. Thanks very much, uh, Cathy. And we'll move now on to Kate Ambler from the International Food Policy Research Institute. If you can turn your camera and microphone on, Kate, thanks.
4: Hello, Um, thank you so much for having me. I'm gonna be talking about um, my work on gender and youth employment in agricultural value chains. Um, And this was joint work uh, with Sylvan Herskowitz, also here at IFGRI and MyWish Meridia from MSU. Uh, Next slide. Um, so this is largely a methodological project. Um, just to give you some background on where we were coming from, uh, there's have been there been a lot of discussion, um, particularly focused on case studies recently that have suggested that the role of women and men, sorry, the role of women and youth in higher value um, off-farm employment um, based in the agri-food system is growing, and that this is something that's like a major growth factor um, you know, generating new and diverse employment in these groups. Um, And these types of jobs may present real opportunities for employment outside of on-farm work uh, to provide new opportunities um, for women and youth but there is little evidence that exists that really fully characterizes this trend. Um, so even though there are lots of stories, there's not a whole lot of evidence that really um, you know, how pervasive it actually is in the greater economy. Uh, next slide. So, what we did was we um, employed three different methods of analysis. The first thing we did was a desk review of existing literature on the topic, um, you know, looking at academic studies and policy reports, um, just to try to understand what we already knew about employment in this area. Uh, The second thing that we did was use existing data. Um, So we asked the question, what can we learn about this uh, phenomenon from data that already exists, but perhaps hasn't been analyzed um, with this particular question in mind? Um, So as many of you all are aware, large household surveys across the world typically do include very detailed labor modules, um, but they may not have been used to characterize employment in exactly this way. A lot of times we think about whether someone is just working, you know, in an own business, or whether they're working on farm, uh, or whether they're working in wage labor, but we don't really think as much about the actual sector in which they're working, if their work is related to the agri-food system or not. Um, So we looked at four surveys in Uganda, Tanzania, Niger, and Ghana to try and understand what we could learn from data that already existed. In particular, that meant that we were looking carefully at the occupation and industry codes um, that were used to characterize people's activities. Um, so this is the case where people list um, a short description of what they, what they do um, in their main productive activities, and then those are coded into standard international um, categories to characterize their occupation and their industry. Um, We focused on these four surveys uh, because not all surveys um, do this coding for all um, of the the, um, activities. Sometimes they only do it for people who report working in wage labor. So we wanted to be able to take a broader view and characterize um, the employment of people who were working both in, you know, own businesses or self-employment as well as those who were engaged in wage labor. And finally, after we finished this, um, this review of existing data, um, we embarked on an examination of new methods and primary data collection um, to see if we could um, use new methods to better understand this question. If there were things that were missing that we couldn't get from existing data, can we change some things, um, about the data collection to better understand this question and at the same time can we use a, a new data collection to understand ways in which existing data collection may be biasing our understandings um of 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 what is actually going on with um with the labor participation of these groups. So we did um, a number of things. One, we randomized the order of the labor module, meaning that uh, we asked about the people in the household and their jobs in random order. Um, And we also compared different methods of asking these questions about about, uh, employment to see if they yielded uh, different answers. Uh, Next question, next slide, please. Um, so, what did we find um, in our literature review? You know of course there are we we found that uh, systematic analysis of productive employment in the agri-food system is not necessarily well covered in existing literature. Of course, there are um, some exceptions um but uh in general, you know it's it's uh, it's an area that is just starting to be to be touched with a few major papers. Um, in, our sur- in our analysis of household surveys, um, we find first, I think um, and most perhaps surprisingly or not surprisingly, depending on your priors, um, there is not widespread wage employment in rural areas in the agri-food system or really um, even in, in urban areas. Um, in Particularly when we talk about wage employment, we see very low percentages of of people reporting that they worked for wages uh, in in the agri-food system. Um, And and when it comes to rural areas, any sort of off-farm employment in the agri-food system is low, even when it comes to self-employment. When we look at urban areas, it's much higher, um, particularly for women. In some countries, we find upwards of 30% of women reporting that they're involved in some kind of um, agri-food system employment, off-farm. However, most of these are own employment. You know, uh, they're working for themselves, self-employment. And if you look deeper at at the industries um, and occupations that they're reporting, it seems that most of this employment may not be, you know, high-value productive employment that we think might really be driving some uh, benefit for them in the future. Uh, A lot of it is just very um, low-scale food sales, for example. Although we can't based on the way income is is collected in these surveys, you can't be entirely sure. Um, So then when we turn to our primary data collection, um, what do we find Um, in our two experiments? We find that based on our randomized ordering um, of jobs, uh, we we find that respondent fatigue reduces jobs reported, um, and that this fatigue is more important for women and youth. And we also find that when we compare two types of questions, um, we find that the standard method of asking um, about your activities, um, like what is your primary activity, is more likely to miss um, productive activities done by women and youth than a method that just asks you yes or no, did you do this, did you do that? Um, So we do suspect that some of the uh, most, the the ways in which we collect data tend to systematically underestimate employment by women and younger people as compared to men um, and those who are more in their prime age. As such, it does suggest that when we are, like, you know, looking um, to understand these um of new types of employment, some of which may not be initially primary employment and that sort of thing, and which may be may be focused among women and youth, uh, we have to be cognizant of how we're collecting the data, um, and, and to the extent that we may be underestimating those trends. Um, Finally, we experimented with a different method of classifying people into agri-food system employment versus not by simply asking them about what sector they were working in, as opposed to using the occupation and industry codes. Um, This method, depending on the goals of the overall data collection, may be, you know, Uh, cheaper and more direct. And we find that it does come up with uh, similar um, data as the standard method that I discussed previously. Uh, So depending on the ultimate goal of the survey, this could be a more streamlined way of collecting that data. Uh, Next slide, please. Finally, um, just to conclude uh, the thoughts on this project, um, uh, employment in high value activities of the agri-food system is most definitely a promising growth area, however, um, where we are today may be uh, not as far as we think as some people may think that um, we have gone. Um, But at the same time, methodological issues may be leading to some undercounting of the employment activities of women and youth, and this is something that we should be cognizant about when we are collecting data, Um, and it just speaks to the point that when we design surveys um, to address these questions, we need to be very um, careful about these methodological questions and understanding. how the way we ask questions may be uh, disproportionately impacting um, the estimates that we come up with. I think an important thing to highlight overall is that our current data, um, beyond everything I've said, our current data is not otherwise well-suited to track whether or not our employment is quote-unquote high value or productive. Um, Because in labor modules, we don't tend to link Uh, much of the self-employment in particular um, to to income data, which is often collected in other parts of the survey, making it difficult to understand whether or not specific people in the household are engaged in in more productive employment. Uh, And this is actually a major issue for trying to understand, you know, whether or not these small businesses that people are running are actually things that are going to be, you know, pushing them forward, or whether they're just, you know, very um, low-level subsistence-type activities. Uh, And um, in order to speak to this, one, uh, my colleagues and I have ongoing work that is designed to try, um, we've added questions to the Labor module that is is focused on trying to um, understand how income is connected to each of these different types of activities. Um, so we hope that that work will um, give us more insight into that question um, to be to be completed very soon. Um, thank you very much.: Great, thanks so much, Kate. Uh,
1: and then turning now to Alessandra and uh, Stephen.
5: Hi everybody. Good morning. Thanks for inviting to uh, give this presentation on the feminization of agriculture and gender dynamics at scale. Um, can you pl- can we please go to the next slide? Thanks. So I'll present some slides, and Stephen will come in as well. So in terms of why why did we do the this study in the first place, this project, um, feminization of agriculture is very often assessed in terms of in numerical terms. Um, Depending on the definition, one way of looking at it is how many women are in agriculture vis-à-vis men over the years. And this is also the definition that we used, for example. But then these same numbers of women in agriculture versus men over the years is also used to um, make projections for the future about, for example, the composition of the labor force. And we use this data, uh, these projections, usually to um, advise governments to, uh, for example, invest in livestock or invest in agriculture and how to do such investment. Sorry, I have a... It's a bit noisy. I, can, some, can everybody mute, please? Um, so we used uh, these projections then based on these numbers to also estimate what happens in the future. And we find this slightly problematic because we know that feminization of agriculture is actually strongly affected by gender dynamics and norms starting from the household. And we know that these, that these gender dynamics and norms, they really change over time in very complex ways. So it's very difficult to assume that the trends in numbers of the last 10 years can be just projected in the future. You know, it's very hard to assume that the same gender dynamics and norms behind these numbers will just reproduce in the future. In that sense, our predictions seem to be slightly inaccurate. What we decided to do then is to try and explore what are the drivers behind feminization or masculinization of agriculture. Rather than just projecting old numbers to the future, we can look at how these drivers are changing and how they may in fact affect who is involved in agriculture and who is not. So our research question was a methodological one, was what methodology can we use to identify the gender-based drivers of feminization of agriculture? As I said, with the goal of really making uh, modeling more accurate based on the process of change and gender dynamics and norms rather than the outcomes specifically. Uh, Can I go to the next slide, please? thank you so much so this is an overview of our methodology which of course is the core of the project and it combines both an inductive and deductive approach Stephen to you please
6: yes Uh, so our methodology combined uh, both the inductive and deductive approach and uh, the first uh, thing that we did was to discuss and uh, identify some of the key drivers that drive feminization of agriculture and this was based on a desk work where we uh, identified drivers based on reported literature and discussion between the the scientists and then after identifying the the indicators we classified them into three categories and then we went ahead to look at uh, proxy indicators that uh, can explain these drivers so to identify the some the, the drivers we looked at individual capabilities of which we identified that uh, using DHS data set the demogra- health, demographic health survey data set we can be able to explain uh, the individual capabilities and then also the market opportunities we identify uh, the World Bank indicators and then uh, to define the formal and informal uh, gender norms we use the OECD uh, data sets as, a, as a pro- proxy indicators for these drivers and then we classified the countries into feminizing and masculinizing and uh, the ones that were not moving uh, at all so we used the DHS data again and this one was based on uh, uh, households that we then uh, aggregated to a national level, and then we compared uh, data set from Year one to year two and see the trend of of feminization. The data set had an average gap of five years and that is how we, uh, and where there was an increase in women versus men, we identified those countries as feminizing and where there was uh, an increase in men versus women, we identified them as uh, masculinizing. After that we then uh, applied uh, binomial uh, statistical analysis to identify the key drivers that were contributing to feminization of agriculture and then we also ran uh, machine learning using the Cayman clustering to identify how uh, different countries uh, group together based on uh, how different countries group together and then we compare this with the feminizing countries. So uh, the next step that we were not yet able to accomplish was to validate uh, our drivers in the community level and then uh, after the validation we can then come again and then adjust our models to uh, see how the drivers interact. Next slide please.
2: Thank you Stephen.
5: OK, so what did we find out? Um, quite a few findings, I will try to you know, summarize them. So the key umbrella drivers that Stephen already mentioned were mostly three. So we started with this huge brainstorm of a lot of umbrella drivers, and we had to group them under three main umbrella drivers. Individual capabilities, meaning things like you know, gender, age, education, and you know, so on. Market opportunities was mostly GDP, and formal and informal institutions, meaning laws and norms. Um, Then we also did this analysis of which countries in sub-Saharan Africa are feminizing, which ones are masculinizing, based based on DHS data. And surprisingly, we found that most countries were masculinizing. So the feminizing countries were Burundi, Ghana, Kenya, Liberia, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, and Uganda. And then all the others were masculinizing, with strong masculinization for Niger, Namibia, and Benin. And then, as we said, the main body of the work for us was really to try and identify some drivers behind other masculinization or feminization. And so when we looked, when we used statistical analysis, the one driver that emerged that affected both feminization and masculinization in the same way was the laws restricting women's access to financial services. When we looked at, uh, when we used machine learning, it was interesting because we found that at national um, that at national level, women facing discrimination was a driver of feminization of agriculture, while women facing no discrimination was a, a, a driver of masculinization of agriculture. We also found that um, a low GDP per capita was present among the countries that were feminizing, while a high GDP per capita per capita was common to countries that were masculinizing. And when it came to the household level, we saw that a medium uh, household wealth wealth index was common among countries that were feminizing, while a poor and rich wealth index was common among countries that were masculinizing. Uh, The other thing that we did is we also looked at what drivers emerged across both statistical analysis and machine learning. And we noticed that these are the following drivers that emerged across the two approaches. Household exposure to medium and medium and high wealth index as affecting feminization. And also um, women facing legal discrimination and high GDP per capita as affecting uh, respectively feminization and masculinization of agriculture. Uh, Next slide, please. Okay, so our conclusions and contribution to the body of knowledge on feminization of agriculture is mostly methodological because, as I said, you know, this was a methodological study. So, four common drivers emerged across the two approaches that we chose to identify the interlinkages between feminization and masculinization and the drivers that we had selected exposure to media, household wealth index, laws discriminating women and GDP per capita. These were the four that emerged across the two uh, approaches that we used. Um, the machine learning approach was really quite interesting, quite revealing. It really showed some key drivers across both masculinizing and feminizing countries. And it showed the same drivers as complementary. So one driver was affecting feminization, the opposite trend in the same driver was affecting masculinization. So. Quite interesting. And machine learning also uh, showed some of the nuances, So, for example, on the level of um, uh, the wealth index, which was, again, very interesting, even though, of course, there is no way of understanding or getting to the house of why things happen. So, you know, of course, we think that qualitative uh, analysis would help here. We faced a bit of attention. As I said before, we deductively worked on identifying the drivers of feminization and we did that intentionally. We didn't just want to use the data out there to be told which drivers exist which drivers are behind feminization and masculinization because we thought then our findings would be affected from the available data. As we know, you know, only some data is available. So we deductively did this big, big, big brainstorm of all the possible drivers based on the literature, but then because we had obtained 40 or so, we had to reduce them under three main umbrella drivers that then we could handle when we wanted to establish this relationship between drivers and feminization or masculinization. But while this was actually while going down to three drivers was helpful for the analysis, it also showed us that, you know, of course, we lost all the granularity within each driver. And of course, we were wondering, OK, what about that? You know, these other sub drivers, how do they influence feminization and masculinization? Um, and again, as I said, we actually tried to identify the, the, the drivers deductively because we didn't want to just be driven by existing data. that could you know, be missing some important bits. But then again, when we had to identify indicators for each driver, we had to choose indicators based on the available data. So I think we moved a bit forward in terms of, you know, uh, not just let, you know, not not just be driven by the existing data and, you know, kind of be proactive in identifying the drivers uh, to also define, uh, you know, some of the, you know, missed uh, information, but we didn't go very far on that. And finally, this is just on a bit on the data, For us, it was quite surprising that more countries masculinize than feminize in sub-Saharan Africa. So it kind of made us think a little bit that maybe we shouldn't just think of feminization as an ongoing process of just increasing women's uh, involvement in agriculture, but maybe that masculinization and feminization are more like fluid and complementary phenomena that are really quite context and time specific. And just a practical example, if, you know, just COVID right now, right, just brought a lot of migrant workers back home. And depending on who these migrant workers are and how whoever stayed back home had arranged their agricultural work, you know, COVID will have had huge impacts on, you know, changes in, in labor allocation and probably feminization and masculinization. So maybe we should have a bit more of a fluid understanding of the complementarity between feminization and masculinization and their context and time specificity. Thank you so much.
1: Great, thanks so much, Alessandra and, and uh, Stephen. And we'll turn to the last presentation now uh, with elves, uh with a possible uh, uh, um, jump in from, Uh, Bjorn also, go ahead, Alice. Hello, good
7: morning, uh, good afternoon. Um, In the project with Bjorn van Kampenout, David Spielman and myself, we asked the question whether we can reduce some of the intra household constraints to women's empowerment in agriculture so that women could turn processes of feminization in agriculture to their advantage. Now, some of the persistent intra-household constraints to women's empowerment in agriculture, including in our study population of monogamous uh, maize farming households in eastern Uganda. So some of these constraints include women's limited access to agriculture extension information about productivity enhancing technology and practices. And related to that, there is an information asymmetry within those households, with often the m- main male decision-maker having more information than the female decision-maker, and the one with the information advantage, the, the man in this case, can strategically use that to sort of pursue his preferences. So for instance, apply those practices to props where he has the direct access to the benefits of. Then there's also limited recognition of women's role as farmers and the lack of female role models of successful farmers. And neither are couples of male and female farmers portrayed as role model farmers. The, The image is a man being the farmer in agricultural households. Next slide, please. So to address these inter-household constraints um, we implemented two sets of treatments and tested their causal effect on women's empowerment. And for this purpose, so we set up a randomized control trial among a representative sample of maize farming households in rural areas of five districts in eastern Uganda, where maize is an important uh, both food crop and cash crop. And we used 10-minute uh, videos where actor farmers explain and demonstrate recommended maize farming practices in an aspirational story. And so for one treatment, we either showed that video to only the male co heads of the household, either to only the female co heads or to the couple of male and female co-heads together. And so in this case, the group where only the male co-head was shown the video is used as our control group, representing the status quo where male farmers are targeted with extension information. For the other treatment, we made three versions of the video. One with a male actor-farmer. He explained and demonstrated the practices. Another version had a female uh, farmer-actor, where she could also be seen as a role model farmer. And in the third version, both a male and female actor uh, were featured, whereby they project a model of farming together as a couple. And in this case, the group who was shown the video with the male actor is used as our control group, representing again the status quo, where men give the extension information, and only men are portrayed as role model farmers. Next slide, please. So we examined the effect in the first column of women as sole recipients of extension information uh, videos versus men only. In the second column, couples as recipients of the extension video versus only men. The The third column is then women as messengers and role models in the extension video versus a man in the extent appearing in the extension video and the fourth column is couples uh, a couple as messenger as and role model in the extension video versus a man and we look at effects on the following outcomes which are aggregated in indices so first one is uh, knowledge of the female co-heads knowledge of the male co-heads or joint knowledge, so they both know it, about the information promoted in the video. Then we looked at uh, the extent to which uh, mace production-related decisions are made by the female co-head alone, by the male co-head alone, or jointly. Then adoption of practices or adoption of inputs that are decided upon by the female co-head, male co-head, or jointly. And then also production-related outcomes like area, um, yields, and uh, amount on the plots that were female-managed, on plots that were male-managed or jointly-managed in the household. And so, to guide you through our main findings, I marked significant um, effects on indices for women's outcomes in green, effects on indices of joint outcomes yellow, and effects on indices for men's outcomes in red. So, what did we find? Uh, The first column, so providing only women with uh, video-based extension information versus only men, that has a positive effect on women's knowledge about the recommended maize farming practices. And a negative effect on men's knowledge. So women also didn't pass the information on to their husbands. We see a positive effect on women's unilateral decision making about practice. Inputs and a negative effect on men's unilateral decision-making. Also, a positive effect on adoption of inputs by women and a positive effect on uh, output um, outcomes. So, yield and area went up uh, on female-managed plots. There were no effects on joint outcomes. Then, in the second column, so this is the effect of providing couples with video-based extension Uh, information versus only men, and here we see a positive effect on jointly decided adoption of practices and adoption of inputs. We also see a positive effect on women's knowledge, so women also learn when uh, they get information as part of a couple. Again, we see a negative effect on men's unilateral decision-making. So this negative effect on their uh, decision making of men is not necessarily by a lack of information because here they had the information as well it's women getting access to information makes that men are less likely to take decisions alone here we don't see an effect on yield whereas we saw an effect on yield on uh, women's managed plots when women got the information. So actually women need some some sort of monopoly of that information um, to have effects on achievements. Then let's jump to the fourth uh, column which is the effect of a couple as messenger and role model in the extension video versus a man. And here we see a negative effect on man's unilateral decision making again. Otherwise, there's no detectable significant effects on women's outcomes nor on joint outcomes. The third column, which is women as messengers and role models versus men, does not have detectable significant effects on anything. But It's not shown here, but I want to highlight one interesting result from looking into interactions of treatments. And for instance, women are more likely to adopt practices uh, themselves when they alone receive the information and that information was demonstrated by a woman. So for adoption of practices by women, female role models and peer effects uh, seem important. Next slide, please. So, implication of our study is that it shows that there is potential to turn processes of feminization of agriculture more advantages for women by reducing some of those prevailing intra-household constraints to women's agency and benefits from agriculture. Maize farming in uh, Uganda in this uh, study. And uh, take-home messages are like, if the aim is to empower women, then give the necessary information directly to women. If the aim is to empower women in collaboration with male co-heads in the household, then provide provide the extension information to the female and male co-head together. And then extension information presented with inclusion of women, where they can also function as role models, can reduce men's dominant decision making in agriculture and create some space for greater involvement of women thank you very much
1: great thanks so much uh uh and to all of the presenters we'll now turn to uh to ruth mines and dick to hear um her reaction to the presentation so ruth uh, over to you you can turn on your camera
3: Yes, thank you. This was really interesting and I'm glad you set it up Rhiannon with the uh, beginning about these two different narratives that are going on Uh, because we have cases here of examining both the positive and the negative uh, narratives of where women being left behind or issues of of um, women taking opportunities um, and what's interesting also is that the the case the studies address both drivers of these process drivers processes outcomes and interventions that can be used to address the feminization of of agriculture or so-called feminization, this structural change that is happening in different ways in different places. Um, So a couple of themes that came out on this, one is the value of triangulation of data. No single method gives a complete picture. And I think that's. Uh, That probably applies to more than just feminization of agriculture, but it certainly came across here. The other, uh, and perhaps related to this importance of triangulation is that we have normative blinders. um, That we see those blinders applying on respondents in surveys or even in qualitative interviews normative blinders on policy makers, practitioners and i would argue perhaps even on researchers that we need to be aware of that um the there's a a fairly famous um poster in india or no i'm in bangladesh that i've seen that says my wife does not work and it has this woman with 16 different hands showing all the different things she's doing. So I think these normative blinders are something we need to be uh looking at. What are the norms and how do they change what we see? Um the studies uh have have shown I think that there is a lot more complexity and Alessandra used the term fluidity um, than the simple uh, narratives that we hear about feminization of agriculture. And certainly, although these studies were all pre-COVID, I think we saw uh, it's worth doing more examination now of what effect COVID had on this. And then finally, even the one positive case, the the examining this, um, the opportunities for women and youth to become involved in high value agriculture shows that in fact, that may not be uh, quite as rosy as the, the positive stories are told. So we do need these kinds of interventions and looking for both what are the, the policy opportunities as well as programmatic opportunities to really uh, create an equitable uh, playing field uh, for for uh, an equitable gender playing field for men and women to contribute to agriculture and food systems more generally. So I look forward to, to a rich discussion of these cases. Thanks.
1: Great, thanks very much. And with that, I'll turn back to Frank.
0: Hello, hello. Well, we have a, qu- a very quiet uh, chat box, it seems. So um, maybe I'll kick off with a couple questions that came to my mind as I was listening to these. I, I think, both I think for, for the, the the first study of the wheat in South Asia and then the, the maize systems in Uganda, I was just wondering, um, whether the the results would would hold necessarily if we looked at other commodities uh, or uh, um, so in the case of um uh, wheat in South Asia for example, it was noted that you know mechanization was taking away opportunities for employment that um you know were providing women with with uh, good good income sources that they might not otherwise had and I was just wondering if you were able to kind of look beyond wheat when you were doing these studies to look at the other commodities that were also grown in the same areas and whether there was some other, other opportunities emerging there even as wheat opportunities may be shut down and I think also in the case of the the maize studies in Uganda um, about providing information does that was it a particularly um, Good case to, to study with the, the different approaches you made because women and men were both somewhat active um, uh, in the maize sector. Would it all equally hold for some other kinds of crops that might be thought of as being more male-dominated or, or female-dominated? Um, let's say that matoke like, and uh, vegetables and other kinds of things, um, or or a livestock for for that matter. So I was just wondering about the kind of the the the, the the generalizations we can make from those two case studies. So maybe I'll start with those two and then um, I'll come up with some other questions as well for the others. So over to Cathy and then to Els.
2: Thank you. Um, Our study was a small study, so we didn't really look at uh, women's alternative employment. I think what became really clear was that the Scheduled caste and the Sedgwick tribe women were finding alternative employment on construction sites. And in fact, this really affected our field work because um, the Scheduled tribe women had previously been employed within the village upon the wheat and rice fields, paddy fields, were now working in the local city and construction, and they were leaving at around 5 a.m. in the morning and coming back at 10 at night. And they said the stress, know, its obvious, was enormous um, in terms of their ability to live after their children and to manage their lives. That was really the only um, possible source of income f- for them at the moment, as they're losing opportunities in wheat-based farming. Uh, and uh, in adding, not, much, not many vegetables were grown or other crops. And also they're kind of restricted to certain costs. There was one caste which grew vegetables between wheat and rice. And for the general caste women, their mobility was physically restricted within the village. so there were a number of opportunities for the Cedric caste for the general caste and the Brahmin caste within the village. There was nothing, so they had no alternative source of income. Mm. And for men, it was very, very different. They faced a completely different kind of opportunity structure, and what was remarkable in this community was there was a marvel of mine nearby and all these people busy and mining marble and making beautiful ornaments and items this was completely closed to women it was seen as a male-dominated occupation and also i didn't talk about this but young people, women also there was no prospects apart from agriculture just at the very time as opportunities in agriculture were diminishing they didn't have any other opportunities With some were becoming educated and leaving the village, but that was a minority of women. But young men were leaving farming or trying to leave farming and get out. That was particularly affecting the somewhat higher level castes. I mean, it's obvious that Mm -hmm. wheat. I just want to say that often wheat is conceptualised as a crop that favoritizes male labour. but that's not what we found. One of the most important findings, I think, was that we worked alongside quantitative scientists as well. Was that a lot of work that women do in weeds is just not conceptualised, it's seen as a male pot, But actually women do a fantastic amount of work in weeds, including on irrigation. But basically all the tasks right across the season, but it's hardly ever perceived or measured or captured in quantitative work. So that's all I can say, now.
0: Yeah, I no, think that's great thank you and and then else
7: um yes, yeah, so the question whether well, the results would also apply for other commodities, um I think well, the obvious answer is that we should also test that uh, maybe, but um why we chose maize um and particularly in that area is it is um and if it, it is a food crop and at the same time. It is um, a sort of cash crop because excess um, maize is sold there's the Kenyan border um, where it, where it goes to. so in that sense um, if you go by uh, men go for the cash crops and women are more involved in the food crops then maize sort of in that area um, would have both uh, characteristics, actually. We also uh, know that from the data, because we we um, looked at decisions per plot, not per household, so we, we do see that women, uh, where they manage the plots, there's also maize grown. There's maize grown on male-managed plots, and there's maize grown on joint-managed uh, plots. So women um, also are involved to some extent in, in uh, decision-making and definitely in providing la- labor. Um, so um, then we also come to the question, what is, what is a crop, a male crop, and what is a crop, a female crop? So, but that that um, is why we chose uh, maize. And I think for the context of Uganda and maybe some other uh, crops, there is Not this clear distinction of this is only men doing it, and this is only women doing it. Um, So, but yeah, I think being sure (laughs) needs testing. (laughs) Thank
1: you.
0: Great. Thank you. Thanks, Els. Kate, a question came in um, from Kirsten Knest uh, uh, to to ask, can you give uh some more concrete examples of what types of questions you asked in comparison to the standard surveys um you know uh so that's one question and then another one that I had for you um when you when you talk about agri-food systems um to to look at uh, job opportunities in different uh, sectors is there a standard uh do we is there is there kind of an agreed definition of of what types of um yeah uh activities or or uh sectors or you know, types of establishments are included in the agri food system and not because you know there's a lot of things that say feed into the agri food system and you know, so how do you, is there a standard way to, to know what's in and out of an agri food system?
4: <laughs> Thank you. Um so uh yeah, it was hard to uh summarize. We did quite a few different things. Um In terms of the survey work, just on the first question, um, so uh, we had two different um, types of questions that we asked. The first was, so so there was a standard way of saying, what's your primary um, productive activity in the last 12 months? What's your secondary productive activity in the last 12 months? And then also um, similar questions for the last seven days. Um, And then within that, we you know collected the strings that were coded into occupation and industry codes um and sort of viewing that as the standard method and then uh, we also added some additional questions where we basically just directly asked people whether or not their work was part of uh, you know was related to food or agriculture um and whether or not they were um, you know working on farm uh off-farm as self as own employees or as wage employees and so that allowed us to sort of create a different classification without going through all the occupation and industry codes to to put them into the same categories and then um and so if you didn't need that detailed information you could um sort of have someone's own view of of what they were doing and use that um the second thing we did was ask a series of Yes, no questions um, that were like, you know, did you participate in um, on-farm agriculture work? Did you participate in harvesting? Did you participate in transport? Did you participate in, um, uh, you know, and other things like off-farm agriculture-type work, um, non-agriculture work? Uh, So we've, you know, played around with a different. Um, list of those, so those wouldn't be able to tell you necessarily whether or not if you said yes to four things, it wasn't that you had four, you know, activities, but they were t- about things that you did within within those activities. Um, and those are were some of the comparisons we came up with where they said yes to those questions, but they hadn't reported any productive activities. We knew that they were missing something um, when they were asked in the sort of more standard way. Uh, We also asked a set of questions about what kinds of um, tasks they were doing within their jobs to try and get at um, whether they were doing more productive work. Um, And so the the work I alluded to at the end, we expanded that list in in our new surveys to try and also get an idea of whether people on-farm for example, are doing just sort of standard subsistence agriculture, whether they're involved in like more productive work, even though they're you know still classified as just on farm work to get a sense of like where that where that is happening. Um Frank, to your question, uh, yeah, that was a real challenge, actually, when we like go through the occupation and industry codes. um, There were oftentimes ones in which case we weren't really able to make a determination. For example, some people who say they, you know, we ended up um, in some cases classifying people who were really working like in food um, sales, for example. we put them in the agri-food system, but also like have a separate category so that we could sort of say, these are the number of people who are working in like direct retailing of food, um, just because we view that as a special case. Um, If someone's working in like the production of beverages um is that and connected to the agri-food system um a lot of times there would be things like wholesaling they don't often they also don't always specify the product um so it's not always possible to know um so i think that um the answer to your question is no there is no like strict um you know answer Um, in one of our papers we have like a category that's like maybe um, that we weren't able to actually classify yes or no and so there are some people in that category Um, and that is like something that um, if it's viewed important could be you could spend a lot of time uh, talking about Um, so we just basically made judgment calls.
0: Good. Thanks. yeah no i i appreciate that it is
4: challenging.
0: it's challenging <laughs> another area to further make progress on i think um alessandra Sandra and stephen um i a question that came to my mind was um you did the analysis at national level which <clears throat> excuse me which i think it made sense with the data that you have but i wonder to what extent that you would really uncover different kinds of trends of masculinization and feminization. If you looked at subnational locations within countries, you know, that are quite unique. If you go from pastoral areas, let's say, to highly dense areas, to new settling areas, etc., you might you find uh, differences? And would it be possible in some countries to be able to look at subnational level uh, and try to tease out the factors there? And then the other question I had was, you know, I know that um, caught up was to start using but i don't know if they've successfully used this to try to collect information on women's empowerment and of course women's empowerment studies uh you know whether they're looking at uh um, uh, on farm or or livestock or 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 now even in, in Value chains. I, I I think these are being rolled out more and more in countries, but I don't know if we have if from any of these countries that you looked at in Africa, whether we would have some figures at national level that we could also look at, because I think that might be an interesting kind of complement to your trends on feminization and so forth. Um, yep. Yeah, so those two questions.
5: Yes. So about th- thank you so much for the questions. Very, very relevant. So about the first one moving beyond the analysis. So we had two levels of analysis, national and household. And that's what was partly tricky because to be able to compare that, we had to either aggregate or disaggregate the national one, which was already another complexity. But I do, this is something we've been discussing that in a way we have used national borders, right? We have looked at, uh, you know, countries as such, and for ideological political reasons me in practical reasons we may have to move beyond that so we have discussed indeed maybe some of the norms are much more related to pastoral system rather than you know being uganda or kenya yeah so we are we have considered indeed that, that we should reaggregate or look at this relationship between drivers and feminization of agriculture rather than country level based on these other you know possible systems that may you know be more influential in terms of gender norms still it's a bit tricky because the data of course is collected at national level like DHS and so on so but we, we actually right. uh, still hoping to be able to do that but it is indeed complex and in terms of looking at women's empowerment yes it. it I think Stephen helped me here I think when we were trying to understand which which indicators, which proxy indicators we could identify for each of the drivers that we had uh, identified. We did consider at some point some of the data on women's empowerment, but I don't think we had enough to allow us this comparison across all sub-Saharan Africa. But Steven, do you want to come in on that one?
6: Uh, we uh, we could not get any clear statistics on data that was showing uh, women empowerment, so we decided to go with the what is available on the OECD data, which shows uh, the uh, some of the affirmative actions that have been taken to empower women uh, in the areas that we are working on. And uh, <clears throat> it is also possible to uh, uncover new trends at sub-national level and uh, that's something that we are considering and uh, you, and also using the DHS data that is collected at household level, I think it's very, really, very really possible. Mm-hmm.
0: Good, great, thanks. Okay, a question that came in uh, for, from someone else that I think could apply to, to all of you so you can feel free to answer uh, if, if you'd like. So it was about, uh, the question was, if women uh, were able to gain but more rights over land uh, or ownership, would it change the dynamics to the gender dynamics in in any of your your case studies? So for example, currently women often don't own land informally in records. And so so that might have a bearing on whether they're considered as a farmer, for example. And then uh, further that in some matriarchal societies or matrilineal societies, perhaps they do have more are more empowered in terms of ownership and 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 recognition and gender roles, and if if that was came across in any of your studies as well. So over to any of you if you'd like to answer that one.
5: I can yes, try and give uh, an answer that doesn't be, doesn't necessarily relate to this work that we did on <laughs> feminization, but it relates to the work that we do on livestock. And two thought two mm-hmm. two thoughts come to mind. In terms of livestock, a lot of the interviews that we do, we do hear all the time that women are not allowed to keep the biggest species and control them because they don't have land. And that not having land means they don't have a place where the animal can actually stand (laughs) and means they don't have land where they can cut the grass to feed the livestock. So in a way, access to land and control over land seems to be extremely important also in terms of livestock. And then we know, you know, what livestock means as well. So the repercussions are not being able to control livestock. Then just one caveat that I'm not sure ownership is necessarily the key word I would think of, because another study that we did looking at ownership of uh, livestock and relative assets that is, was that when we asked people what they meant when they said that they owned a specific asset, in some cases they meant, um, they did mean both women and men that they had decision making over it, in some other cases that was the extreme, they said they meant that a, a sheep was their own when they were just providing the labor and no decision making. So we kind of lately, really in terms of livestock, try not to say about ownership of land and livestock, but really emphasize that what matters is access and control. You need to have access and control to the resource and the benefits from it, whether you own it legally or not is not exactly detailed, but let's break it down into, you need to have access and control to the resource and the related benefits for you to be able to then move on. I hope this helps.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you, yeah.
4: Anyone else? I could add um, just from the perspective of our work, um, it shouldn't matter because all of our work was really based on questions about like, what are you doing? So like, it's like, you know, it should be really about the labor they were um, providing and not, you know, whether like, are you a farmer? That wasn't the question. The question was like, what, you know, they, when they ask on surveys, what's your productive activity? Um, But to the extent that um, we do find that women's labor seems to be, you know, underestimated and uh more so than men's. Uh it could be that this is one of the reasons. Um and we do find that the it's agricultural labor that is missed more often than non-agricultural labor. Um, so it could ju- it could have something to do with like the identity of being a farmer or something like that. Um, but that wasn't something that we studied specifically. So we'd have to do uh, more research to to know for sure.
7: Maybe I can, can also add that um, sure. there are different land rights uh, for men and women in Uganda. But yeah, our Uh, study was not focusing on on, um, changing land rights or access to land or or control to land, but even if you could make abstraction of that, information apparently is uh, a challenge as well. And if you uh, change access to information, there's gains to be made. And if you, well, with the role models, we didn't have much uh, effect, but there are some uh, indications um, at least um, and in in terms of land rights in Uganda so mostly women marry into the community where the man already has land and then they acquire more decision-making power on that land with marriage and with children and sometimes women do acquire their own uh, plots um, but here yeah we didn't um, look into that. Thank you.
0: Good, thanks. Um, Then uh, I think Rhiannon said she had a a question she could pose. So over to you, Rhiannon.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Frank. So I I have a question for all of you. Uh, Just thinking back to when we initially put out this call for, for, um, for proposals, we had feminization in quotation marks. And we really wanted to um, uh, dig into, to challenge the idea of feminization of agriculture and also to reflect on, yeah, is this a useful way of thinking about rural transformations that are happening? Is it useful for research? Is it useful for development and so on? So I would love to hear from each of you after having done this research for the past year and a half or or longer, two years, I guess. what is your your feeling about about the the term now the term feminization of agriculture and its its relevance mm. and, and utility for for research and development? Thanks.
2: Yes. Great. Um, so. I think for me. Go ahead, Kathy. I think for me, it's, it's too early to answer that question because. When we did the literature review for South Asia we found there's so many methodological shortcomings in the research itself, it made it really difficult to compare different kinds of research. Not, not, this, not between qualitative and quantitative, but between qualitative and qualitative. When people look at different ethnic groups, different regions of the country, they're asking different questions. In other words, there's no standardisation in the approach, which makes it really hard to understand what the data is saying. So I do think that in terms of the the work that everyone on the team has done, we're really moving forward methodologically, but I think this has been a brilliant. Program just to sort of look at the methodologies that we need to understand what feminization and masculinization could possibly mean. So I I I think that's where I really find the value. I'm I'm not quite sure how far we are in understanding how much it's occurring based on our own research, but just how important the methodology itself is. Yes, Leah. Good. Alessandra? And
0: then Elsa?
5: Thanks, Leandro, for that question. It is a, indeed a, a very interesting question, and a question I think we also addressed with the, on the, the chapter that, when, when working on the chapter that you mentioned before, the one led by Cheryl Doce. And I totally agree with you, Cassie, I, but I do think there is a value. I think there is a value to the concept, first of all, because it helps us think. <laughs> uh, but it's also, there is a value to try and think, you know, is it more women than men in agriculture over time? Who, who is really our population here whom are we dealing with because if you really there is more women in agriculture than men we know there are many implications in terms of you know access to resources the policies and whatever else but i do agree that we need to add a lot of complexity to you know kind of the shortcut feminization of agriculture and masculinization of agriculture and you know one of the very very big issues that i see is the one that also Ruth was mentioning it. I think, Ruth, you called uh, uh, the the norms bias or something, uh, the norms blinder. The fact that when this is something we also realized when doing our work with DHS data, the question is if you really believe, as we do, that gender norms really affect your self-perceptions and the perception about the others and who's the farmer, who's not the farmer, a simple survey asking who is farming in this household, who is the farmer in these households, we have gender-biased answers. So simply relying on quantitative large data sets to decide who's involved in agriculture is just not sufficient because that data set would reflect gender biases. And then I guess by using the data, we probably reproduce and you know, keep going on with this gender bias. So for me, the idea is that the concept of feminization and masculinization are important because it, they do help us to you know, think who, who, who is our rural population, who's working in agriculture. But then we have to be really careful about what data we use, what are we looking at, what's behind, yeah. So also your question, Cathy, what are the implications for work on women's empowerment in countries that are masculinizing? I think it all depends on what does it mean, why are they masculinizing, right? What's behind it, you know, and therefore how do we engage with women's empowerment? Thanks.
7: Um, maybe uh, first to pick up of. A- on um, what Alessandra was saying, we also used our experiment to see if uh, if we use these role models of women or couples, do we see um, a change in uh, people overstating their role in agriculture? And we did actually see that if we presented women as role models, that the overstating or understating of your role actually changed as a as a result of that. So that's sort of a proof that it is normative uh, what you answer to the questions. But uh, but I actually uh, wanted to respond to Brianna's question of whether feminization of agriculture is a useful concept, I I sort of reflected on it that there's two things that can happen. You can be left behind. And then it's maybe not your choice as a woman. You can also choose to be more involved. And then is feminization of agriculture more sort of empowerment actually? If it's not your choice and you're left behind, then to me it's sort of, yeah, is is that going to be a bad thing for these women? Or do they find an opportunity there to, to take more? control to have more agency so in that sense i'm yeah i don't know there's more behind (laughs) the term i think thank you
0: great thanks I i have i have one other question i think for all of you as well now we when we were funding these studies when the platform was under PIM we offered Fairly modest amounts of money. <laughs> now, many of you complemented that with other sources of funds, obviously, to, to create larger studies. But you know, we could, you know, it, we could see still see that there's, you know, some case study, you know, you know, uh, well, we, the you know applied in wheat only uh, in South Asia. As, uh, Kathy was noting that, you know, that this this small n number and and also in Uganda, just the maize there. Um, and Kate, you're also trying, I think, struggling on a relatively modest budget to, to advance this. And could, so I was just wondering now, I think the new gender platforms offering a bit more money. And obviously, if we can develop these initiatives in the CGIR to, to really fund gender research uh, at the level that it should be. Um, could you have, if you had a budget that was a lot a lot larger could you have seen that you would have made a lot more progress in the time than than what you have i mean the results are are obviously great but you you also still point to further research could be useful here and there and and it would have been nice i guess at the beginning if we could have covered all that further research so i don't know if you have any uh thoughts on um you know how you know what? What ideally that your you know your studies could have been reconceptualized to to have done um, and and brought us to a, a, a possibly a different uh, uh, stage at this point in time had the had the studies been able to to do more. I mean, you you must have cut cut some corners here and there. So I would I don't know if there was just any kinds of things that you look back on and say yeah if we would if we would have had more money we could have really gone for you know uh, a, a, quite a bit farther in our understanding on this so. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that.
4: Um, Well, our study was, we pieced together um, a number of different, um, mostly PIM funding, um, although the one Ghana survey was part of another project, so we kind of piggybacked onto field work that was already being done. So, I mean, I think that we, you know, mostly have accomplished our initial objectives. Um, Every research project, I think that's the best research projects leave you just with new questions at the end. Um, So that's not surprising at all. (laughs) Um, Uh But yeah, of course, um, you know, in terms of doing like long, um, more, you know, methodological research, you need access to um, large samples and large surveys, which are expensive, but could be—you know—the idea is mostly to to operationalize that research by using work that's already being done for other purposes as well. Um, so uh, that's something that I think we hope to hopefully continue doing. Um, but
0: good, uh, Kathy. Then yeah, then Alessandra.
2: Just briefly, um, I think what was really good about the work we were able to do was that we worked in the village which had already been visited by Genovate. And part of Genovate was to look at trend data from ten years before. Basically, we had fourteen years of data to work with. So when we, that was really positive. We got very, very rich data by going back and working with the Genovate data in discussion with the community. But when we analyse the other Gen data in twelve villages altogether in different Indian states, of course there was huge diversity in the processes. But you know, in some locations male out migration was really high. Where we were, it was very low. There's great diversity in gender norms. I can imagine if the grant had allowed us to go to all of those villages again, all twelve. In, in all these different Indian states, we would have come up with a much, much richer data set and been really able to say a lot about feminization or masculization of agricultural processes. And that would have been really, really exciting. So to build upon existing data, not with starting again in a new village, but to build on what has already been done. So of course we could have said more because India is a massive country with huge diversity. But it was a great opportunity. I think we really learned a lot. And What I really liked is that Compared to some of the research we've read from the literature review, I think we really found a lot of complexity and a lot of change in a short time. I think Ansandra was also talking about that. Is Just in those 10-14 years that Genevieve was able to map, these women's lives and men's lives have changed radically in a short time and those processes seem to be accelerating. So you you can't just say that much about feminization based on like a snapshot at one time, it really is a process. I think it's, the idea of processes is really
0: yeah. important. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And Alessandra?
5: Yeah, um, else? Maybe I'm bringing a different perspective here. The, it was interesting for us that the funding was small, I feel, <laughs> because we did something that wasn't a, was a bit different from we, what we usually do. And I think we could afford to do that to, even within ILVI submit a, you know, a bit of a different uh, approach. It wasn't just going to the field and doing what I usually do, qualitative fieldwork. And so on. it was about this understanding, the driver's methodological paper. And that, I think, was possible because the risk was low. <laughs> the risk was low because the money wasn't so large. <laughs> so in a way, I did say, I did argue. I said, you know, when are we getting, yeah. you know, for this kind of small, tiny, you know, more kind of experimental work, which I do think we need to do. Research is about also experimenting, making mistakes as well. For, to be able to do that, mm. you, you need to, to lower the risks. And that's possible also when the funding is not so big. <laughs> so I'm not saying we don't need more funds, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> but yeah. maybe, you know, sometimes these are yeah, yeah, also creating opportunities to do something a bit different. Right. Seed money to do something out of the box, yeah. low risks, nobody cares, mm. like whatever, just try it. and yeah. yeah
0: okay that's interesting good thanks and and else
5: (laughs) um yeah
7: maybe first i i think we sort of i'm i'm happy we were quite efficient with our research design uh, which was like a cross design of treatments. so we we were able to answer quite a few research questions with one um randomized controlled trial and then um I think what we want to delve more into is um, these role models. We we expected more effects there uh, based on the emerging literature. And so the one question that lingers is, is this a dosage problem? Was it not intensive enough to change people's perceptions of who is a farmer and identities of who is a farmer? So maybe a longer, more engaged um, interventions were needed and then maybe also yeah under what conditions do role models uh change something so that that would be something we want to look in more and yeah also maybe testing these other contexts other crops that would be also uh, something of interest thank you
5: you need second doses and boosters great
7: (laughs) yeah maybe
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah Great. Well thanks. Uh, thanks very much. I we've come to the end of our time. I think there was one other question that came in later. We'll just pass it on to the uh to the speakers if they can follow up with the uh, with the person. Uh but thanks uh very much. Uh very uh interesting and diverse set of uh, studies. And uh well I learned a lot and I and I think everyone else did as well. Um, thanks also to Ruth for her very insightful comments as well, and to Rhiannon for moderating. And um, so I will uh, thank all the people who attended as well. And just a reminder that we will post the uh, recording of this uh, web- webinar on the PIM website very soon. So pass it on to your friends who haven't who weren't uh, able to join us live. So thanks again and have a great day or evening wherever you are. <laughs>
2: Thanks everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye.